Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. All right. Whoa. Moving spotlight. Hi, everybody. Okay. Let's, um, where did the, where did my front row person go? You were right. Okay. So here's the deal. So what do you usually do in movie theaters? Watch movies. Do you usually engage or participate in the watching of the movie? No. You just sit there passively spectating, right? Now, there is much in the American church that leads us to the same thing. And movie theaters and seats don't really help our cause much. So if I'm annoyingly trying to engage you, there is purpose in that. Because the last thing we want to communicate is that somehow it's okay to think as a body of believers... Uh, that, that what we do is come and watch and instead of being engaged. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, who's the audience for this thing? God is, right? Not us, not... And the most important questions we ask in a worship service are not, did we like it? We ask those about movies. The, the most important questions we ask about worship services are not, hey, did I think it was good? Did it meet my needs? The most important questions we ask are, was the gospel preached? Was the name of Jesus praised? You think God was pleased with this whole thing and whatever else. So I want to know, if you don't mind, by the way, my name's Mike. We're glad you're here. I want to know uh, just like how did God show you faithfulness? How did he show you his faithfulness this week? You're going to have to raise your hand and say something publicly, almost like we're a family. Okay, ready? Who's got something? Right now, who you got? Real quick, like two words, two sentences, something. Buckeyes one. Yep, we'll take care of that. Anything else? Anything else? Okay, let's get the football stuff out of the way early. I like that. Stanford won. And for US, USC fans, do you think God's got it out for you this year? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's no question. Anything else? What? I like that. How? A what? A book you're reading. Nice. I mean, they still make books? That's phenomenal. People still read them? That's fantastic. Somebody over here? Yes, ma'am. Um, I work with children with autism, and my client graduated our program early, and he's talking now, he's engaging and with his peers, and he's going to preschool in a typical class. So. I love it. So you, she works with uh, kids with autism, and she had a little girl who graduated early. Talking, relating, and undesignated going into preschool. Oh, we're happy for that. Nice, nice job. Anything else? Yes, sir. Really? So hold on, let me get this straight. You're imperfect and you're showing up to church and finding help. That is unbelievable. That almost sounds like Jesus. That is awesome. Thank you for letting us know that too. Because yours is the only tough marriage in here, right? There's no other hard marriages going in here right now. Thank you for sharing that, and praise God. I love it. Anything else? Yes, in the back. Uh, Through friendships. Like face-to-face friendships or Facebook? (laughs) Face-to-face. Those things still happen. Nice. Anything else? One more. It's got to be a big one. Yes, sir. All the pressure's on you. 
Nice. So he's just surprising you in the way that he's giving you opportunity to talk about him. Way to go. I like that. Um, here's the deal, guys. We, uh, we're trying to do a couple of things when we get together. Number one, we want to remind ourselves of things that are already true. And so we don't come, we come as forgetful people, right? We just come immersed in the value systems, the priorities, uh, um, the ways of the world. We come to just be reminded. That's why we sing, because most of us just aren't singing most of the day. Um, that's why we declare words. That's why we worship through giving. We worship through singing. We worship through listening. And sometimes that's a chore, probably the biggest sacrifice of all. Uh, uh, but we gather uh, to be reminded of who we are and who God is. But then the second reason we gather is to be put back together and mended because the church really is doing its best work when it's out there in the world. And so the church isn't a building, the church isn't a place, the church isn't a set of programs, the church is you. And we gather as the church in a renovated theater just to be reminded of all of that. So we're really glad that you're with us. And we do want to wage war against the spectatorship of the American church. And often the systems we have in place in our minds about how we talk about churches and how we evaluate them, we just want to blast away all of that and say, you know what, Jesus, here's what we believe. When your word is preached, when your praises are sung, he'll bring who he wants to bring and the rest will take care of itself. So with that in mind, let's go to Matthew chapter 20. 23, I will go back up where the light is brightest, and because you need the glistening gleam off of my noggin. We're glad that you're here. A couple of things. Um, Tim pointed out that little uh, sheet, that little card that you have. Uh, there's RSVP information on that if you're coming to this leadership party we're throwing. Would you uh, fill that out and let us know that you're bringing your kids so we can have enough child care workers? And then um, we really do need help with our kids' ministry. We, we do this full-on children's ministry. We don't babysit your kids. We don't, I mean, we full-on minister to them, and we need help doing it, especially as we've gone to two services. There are a whole host of people who are at the 9 o'clock service who are now serving your kids, and we need some of you to, to serve at the 9 and stay for the 11 if you're able to. I have three children in children's ministry right now. They don't know Jesus, and they need your help. It's all on you. How's that for guilt and shame? Now, one of them is the cutest child in the history of the world. His name is Seth. And if you're lucky, you will hold him and share in his drool. Um, he's amazing. Now, uh, what we want to do is we want to continue on in the series we've been in called Jesus Hates Religion. And we entitled it that. Um, not that you're particularly interested, because the, the assumption, the cultural assumption, of course, is that Jesus founded a religion. Why would he hate it? And we just want to say, no, 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 when you look at the New Testament Gospels, what you see is the most antagonistic uh, that Jesus gets towards anybody is towards the religious folks of his day. If you remember, we keep talking about Pharisees. Pharisees were the religious all-stars. These were the people that, that you would point to and say, well, they're the ones right with God. Like if in our culture, you look at Billy Graham or you look at Mother Teresa and you'd say, if those people aren't right with God, then it's impossible to be right with God. The Pharisees were, had that kind of respect in first century Jewish culture, which is all the more stunning that Jesus of Nazareth keeps calling them hypocrites, blind guides, children of snakes, right? He keeps, he keeps going after them, not because he doesn't love them, because he loves them. And the people that are hardest to convince uh, to receive healing are the people that don't believe they're sick. And so Jesus had to just confront them time and time again because their very religiousness was getting in the way 
of their following him. And so Matthew 23 is a series of proclamations that Jesus is speaking against this crew. We looked at a bit of them uh, last week. We're going to finish that conversation today. Matthew 23, let's go in verse 1. When Jesus said to the crowds, oh, excuse me, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Moses' seat was a place in the synagogue that was the place of authority. So these were the people that were the authoritative interpreters of the Old Testament text. He says, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Isn't that shocking, religious people who do not practice what they preach? Isn't that just horrifying that that would ever happen? I'm so glad that doesn't happen today. Come on. I expect you to be caffeinated. Notice the image that Jesus gives of what these people do. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Has religion ever felt burdensome to you? Anybody? Absolutely. There's this sense, whether it's laws, pillars, karma, whatever, there's this sense that, that the image Jesus gives of empty religiousness is just a piling on of burdens onto people. And in the Pharisees' case, the Pharisees tie all these burdens on people and then don't help them. They just sit there and say, okay, well, good luck. Remember the Pharisees added 600, they had 610, 613 commandments of the Old Testament, and then they added 1,500 rules, regulations, and rituals on top of that. Does that sound heavy to you? Absolutely. So Jesus looks at them and says, your number one issue is hypocrisy. We looked at that last week. You, you practice something different than what you preach. But the second thing is, what you do preach actually loads people down with burdens and doesn't help them carry them. Now, we want to look at one specific example of how they did that. They did that, they did that in lots of different ways. We want to look at one specific example of how they did that. Jump down to verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. We're still in Matthew 23, verse 23. He says, you hypocrites. Whoops, I missed it. Yeah. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So he's saying you should have practiced justice, mercy, and faithfulness, which are way more important, while at the same time practicing like the tithing of your spices. He says, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Does that sound like a compliment to you? Not so much. Now, to understand this conversation, we're going to go on like eight minutes of Old Testament detail. So buckle up. This will become relevant. Keep your finger in Matthew and flip over to the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So we're fifth book in from the front. And let's go to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 14. Now, when Jesus says that the Pharisees give a tenth of their spices... In the Old Testament, something was commanded. It was called tithing. What you would do is you take the word tithe means tenth. You would take 10% of whatever came in, uh, whether it was from the field or through um, 
a, a sale of something, you would take 10% of that and offer it to God, symbolizing the fact that it's all his to begin with, that, that he's faithful, that he will provide, so on, so on, so on. It was commanded in Deuteronomy 14, look at verse 22. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. So the command was whatever you grow in your fields, take a tenth of that and you would consume it before the Lord as a way of saying thank you that you would learn to respect and worship him. Now, Jesus says the Pharisees tithe dill, mint, and cumin. Now, this is from uh, the Erie family uh, storehouse. This is ground cumin. And I want you to see how ridiculously small this is. Okay? Can you see that? Could you imagine counting out one of ten of those? Can you see that? Can you see how just like utterly negligible that is? Hello? It smells really good up here right now. But, I mean, isn't that ridiculous? I mean, so the idea that they would tithe a tent of their spices. So it's Christ's image for saying, you guys focus on the tiniest. I mean, can you imagine counting out? You know, I have 100 cumin seeds, and i got to count out 10 to give to the Lord. I mean, that's ridiculous. Okay, so they took this command in Deuteronomy, and they applied it even to the little herb gardens they would have uh, around their homes. Now, on the other hand, he says, is it wrong to tithe your spices? No. But if that causes you to neglect, and he uses three words, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These are big, beautiful Old Testament words having to do with God's care for the poor and needy. We're going to talk about that next week. He says, if you're focusing on this to the neglect of the other, you've missed the point. Right? So Jesus, what Jesus is getting after them on is the fact that they're so focused on minutia, they've missed the main point. Mercy, justice, faithfulness. And those things are the far more important things. So it's not that tithing your spice was wrong in Jesus' day. It was that if focusing on the minutia causes you to miss the point, then religion gets in the way. So the accusation he's making against them is that They've, missed, they've majored on the minors. They've made secondary issues of primary importance, and they've made primary issues of secondary importance. Now, he uses this wonderfully familiar analogy of straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Go to the wonderfully friendly book of Leviticus. So flip over a couple books to the left. There's a section in Leviticus to understand, and if you're lost here, bless you. You are so not alone. There, to understand this image that Jesus uses of a gnat and a camel, you kind of have to understand the significance of those two animals. Leviticus chapter 11. So we'll start in verse 4. And if you're looking for Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So we're three books in from the front. Go to verse 4. This is God... Uh, and there are reasons for this. God designated some animals clean and some animals unclean in the Old Testament. And there's this big, beautiful backstory. It's not just random. Like, there's this whole, like, thing he's doing that we don't have time to explore. But 
Both Nat and Camel were on the do not consume list. So verse 4. There are some animals that only chew the cud. We all know what that means. Or only have a split hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud. We all know what that means. Thanks. Sign of life. Does not have a split hoof. It is ceremonially what? Unclean. So are you allowed to eat camel? No. Go if you would to verse 20. All flying insects that walk on all fours are to be detestable. Okay, is a gnat a flying insect, the insect that walks on all fours? Yeah, I think it has four legs. I mean, it's kind of tiny. But I'm thinking it has four legs. Right? Does it? It has six? All right, well, thanks for ruining that whole point. Um, What's that? In Jesus' time, they only had four. That's right. Evolution solved that, right? Of course. All right, so, however it happened, camels, thanks, Jay. And how do you know they have six? You've... All right, listen. I don't like any of you. And now, I don't like the commu- I don't like the dialogue thing. We're just going to go back to monologue, okay? <laughs> I have a teacher for a wife. That just, that's no good. No. We'll focus on the flying insect part, because that's the part that was unclean. Flying insects, which gnats are, and camels, which camels are, camels, We're both unclean, ceremonially. So here's the image. You would have, let's say this is a glass of like wine, because that's what they drank back in the day. You would have a system of strainers that would keep flying insects with four or more legs out of there. So you'd have have like literally a set of strainers. And so to drink, you take the strainers off, you drink, you put the strainers back on to keep gnats, flies, any any flying insect from infecting the cup that had uh, whatever you were drinking in it, all right? So the image that Jesus is giving is that you're so focused on keeping the smallest unclean thing out, but your focus there is causing you to, sw- to swallow the biggest unclean thing there is, the camel. So I know you're like, well, okay. So the point he's making in both instances is, hey, is it wrong to tithe your spices? No, but if in doing that, you neglect the more important things, you've missed the point. Is it wrong to strain out gnats and flies? No, but if you're swallowing camels because you're so focused on the minutia, then you're worse off. His point in both cases is that the Pharisees had missed the point. Of their, for all their obedience, for all the commandments, they'd miss the point. Jesus begins by saying these Pharisees tie on heavy burdens. And then he gives an example. You tithe, but you neglect. You put burdens on people that have them focus on the minute aspects of the law, but, you don't, but in so doing, you neglect the most important aspects. You swallow camels, but you strain out gnats. Now, go, if you would, back to Matthew. 
I want to give you an example of where the Pharisees do this. Where the Pharisees miss the point, because that doesn't happen today, does it? It doesn't happen that religious people focus on really minute things and miss like the whole point. That doesn't happen today, right? Matthew chapter 12, and let's go verse 1. We're going, to ha- we're going to have a conversation about something called the Sabbath. In the book of uh, Exodus, God looks at his people and he says, listen, I created in six days, so you will work in six days. I rested on the seventh day, so you will rest on the seventh day. You are to do no work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath uh, for them was Friday night to Saturday night. For us, we usually think of Sabbath as like Sunday. The Sabbath command was really, really important to God. In fact, if you broke the Sabbath in the Old Testament, you could be liable for the death penalty, all right? So it was a big, big deal. God reiterates the Sabbath command in the book of Deuteronomy. When he looks at his children, he's delivered them from uh, Egypt and slavery. And he says, listen, in Egypt, you had to work all seven days. You never got a day off because you were oppressed under this foreign power. With me, I want you to celebrate the Sabbath as not only a sign that I rested, but as a sign of your liberation, that you're no longer oppressed. Now, the Jews, for after generations, got sent into exile. They got removed forcibly from their promised land and sent all over the world. And the, the literature, the Old Testament literature of that time gave many reasons for exile, but one of them was that the Jews weren't faithful in keeping the Sabbath. So when a bunch of Jewish folks go back to the promised land after the exile's over, and they're determined never go to never go into exile again, they naturally focus on keeping the Sabbath perfectly. Because for them, it was a matter of national identity. Like, we never want to go into exile again. We got into trouble because we didn't keep the Sabbath. So what's the answer? Keep the Sabbath perfectly. So the command was do no work on the Sabbath. Now, is that helpful to you? Not really, because what's the question? What's work? Right? For me, working on my car is work. For other guys, working on their car is a way to relax. Right? Same with gardening, same with whatever. So what counts as work? Well, the ever-helpful rabbis decided to give 39 different categories of what constituted work. And it was based on the construction of the temple. And as they teased out ever... (laughs) ridiculous iterations of not working. I mean, it just got burdensome completely. So uh, we've talked about this. If you could carry enough ink for two Hebrew letters, for one Hebrew letter, excuse me, if you had, if you had ink for two Hebrew letters, you were carrying a burden on the Sabbath. You could carry enough milk for one swallow. If you had two swallows of milk, that was carrying a burden. Women were not allowed to have mirrors or looking glasses around lest they pluck a gray hair. Because that would be harvesting. I'm not making this up. You could ride a donkey on the Sabbath. But if you used a switch, a switch was a little branch that you would use to keep it motivated. If if you used the switch on the donkey, it was guilty of laying a burden on the donkey. Now, if you're already riding the donkey, isn't that burden enough for the donkey is my question. So does this feel liberating to you or does it feel burdensome? Totally, ridiculously burdensome. The heart of the Pharisees originally was to say, we want to honor God. But as they tried to honor God, they started focusing on tithing their spices, right? And neglecting the point. They started straining at gnats and swallowing camels. They missed 
the point entirely. So it's not surprising when Jesus shows up, he's getting into trouble with them quite dramatically. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Back then, if you had a field, you would leave the edges unharvested for poor people. The fact that Jesus and his disciples felt comfortable gleaning some of this uh, shows that they weren't very high on the socioeconomic scale. The Pharisees aren't normally out in fields, so they were obviously keeping track of Jesus and looking for a reason to accuse him. And they accuse him, though the text doesn't say, the accusation was that the disciples were harvesting and threshing grain on the Sabbath. So they say to Jesus, hey, your disciples are doing something unlawful because you weren't allowed to harvest or thresh and plucking the grains and then rubbing, them, rubbing the outside part off so you could eat the inside part. That was threshing according to them. Jesus is going to kindly remind them they've missed the point. He answered, verse 3, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? This is an Old Testament story. He says, David entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which only priests were allowed to eat. So there's a big backstory to this. What Jesus essentially is saying is, listen, Pharisees, you've missed the point. In fact, there's an Old Testament example where David, due to necessity, actually broke one of these commands and ate bread he wasn't supposed to eat. Implicitly, what Jesus is doing is saying he has the same sort of status as David did, the same sort of entitlement that David did. He says, secondly, verse 5, Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the Sabbath day and yet are innocent? In other words, Jesus says, Hey, haven't you noticed that actually everyone gets to rest except the priests? And they've got to offer sacrifice. right? The temple is kind of cranking on the Sabbath. So they work, they carry burdens, and yet they're innocent. Jesus' implication is, well, I'm priestly. And then he says this, I tell you that one greater than the temple is now here. And I wish there were a way in English I could convey how absolutely ridiculous that little add-on was to the Jews. The temple was the center of heaven and earth where God dwelt. And Jesus is saying, hey, the priests and the temple are cool. One greater and more important than the temple is standing right here in front of you. And then he says, verse 7, if you'd known what these words mean, and then he quotes uh, from Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You see, whether you got all of that, you see what Jesus is doing. You're straining gnats, you're swallowing camels, you're tithing spices, neglecting mercy. You've missed the point. You've made what was supposed to be something that was liberating, something that, um, that breathed life into God's people, you've made it a burden. Do you see how it's become a burden? All of this stuff added on. And so Jesus confronts them and he says, listen, and he gives three different examples that are so incredibly powerful. In essence, he aligns himself with David, he aligns himself with the temple, and then he says, and just face it, mercy is more important to God than your sacrifice anyway. Then the Pharisees, now if you're wondering why this matters and where this is going, give me like a little bit more time. Because there is relevance fast approaching. It is a train maybe 50 yards away, closing in fast. Verse 9. 
Going on from that place, Jesus went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. So this is Sabbath day. You go to synagogue on Sabbath. One of the rules that you had to keep is you would do no healing work, no medical work on the Sabbath unless somebody's life was in danger. So having a shriveled hand, does that mean your life is in danger? No. He's probably had it for a while. So the Pharisees set Jesus up. They bring in a dude whose hand is shriveled. His life is not in danger. And they say, hey, is it lawful to heal him on the Sabbath? Their answer is no, it's not. Jesus says, let me ask you guys a question. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Which would be working. And the answer is, well, yeah. If one of your animals is in harm's way, even if its life isn't in danger, you'd still rescue it on the Sabbath. He says, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other hand. And then the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Was the Sabbath a big deal to these folks? Absolutely. So they'd taken something that was supposed to be liberating, added a whole bunch of rules, made it a burden, and now they get ticked at Jesus because Jesus is saying, you know what? You've missed the point entirely. Now remember where we started the conversation. Matthew 23. Jesus looks at the religious leaders and say, you tie on heavy loads and do not help people carry them. The question is, okay, well, how do they do that? So we went to Matthew 23, 23. They focus on minute issues and neglect the more important ones. They focus on secondary matters. They strain at gnats and swallow camels. They tithe their spices but neglect mercy, faithfulness, and justice. What's an example of where they do that? The Sabbath. They miss the point entirely and Jesus comes, confronts them, and they're ticked off. Now, does this kind of missing the point happen today? Does this kind of burdening happen today? Absolutely. I love, there's this quote. I read from a dude who met Adolf Hitler before Hitler uh, decided to declare war on everybody. And it was just when he was rising to power, and this guy was a pastor. And here's what he says about the Nazi regime. It is a great relief to be in a country where salacious sex literature cannot be sold, where putrid motion pictures and gangster films cannot be shown. The New Germany has burned great masses of corrupting books and magazines. And this same delegate defended Hitler as a leader who did not smoke or drink, who wanted women to dress modestly, and who opposed pornography. Never mind the fact that he's going to like kill six million Jews and that he's going to you know declare war in the world or whatever. But at least he didn't smoke. <laughs> Hello, missing the point. Does this happen today? How about the 1950s church? Right? Don't dance. But segregation, totally biblical. Interracial marriage, totally sinful. But don't dance. I, I, uh, my stepfather, God rest his soul, uh, and I had a good relationship, but he embodied this to me. He was a serial adulterer. He was greedy. He was prideful. He was a racist. I mean, totally gnarly. And I was doing a wedding for his grandson. And he caught us playing a game called Euchre in the church. Euchre is not a gambling game. It's like 
go fish. I mean, it's totally innocuous. And we're playing euchre in the church. And he confronts me. You do not play cards in church. I mean, he got all self-righteous on me. And I'm going, really? Says the serial adulterer, racist, greedy, prideful. Straining at gnats, swallowing camels. Does this happen today? I was a youth pastor and I had a junior high youth group leader who decided that Oshkosh Bagosh clothing should not be worn by junior high students because it was taking the Lord's name in vain. Gosh is a derivative of God, which is taking God's name in vain. Did you even know there was a clothing line called Oshkosh Bagosh? It's like a Midwest sort of thing. Do you think maybe junior hires were wrestling with issues that were a little more important to them than that? Maybe? Really? I mean, I, I remember, and, and forgive the examples, because they're going to get progressively closer to home. I just want to start beating up on other people, right? And then they kind of zero in on me. I remember um, uh, we, were, uh, I was, um, we were preaching a series, and I ran into these two atheists that came to the church. And they're like 17 years old. And their calling card is that they're atheists, right? So I meet them. I'm like, hey, nice to meet you guys. They're like, we're atheists. I'm going, okay, great. But they're like, we love coming here. There's just something about it. We just like it. And they're, out, they're sitting outside. They're smoking cigarettes outside of our church. And, they, and we had to constantly rebuke Christians that would come up to them and tell them not to smoke. Now, if I'm going to have smoking atheists anywhere, I'd, I'd like them right outside of church as they're going in. Can we agree on that? So is smoking, cigarette, is that like the major issue they should be confronted with? I don't think so. I think there were more important ones. Or I was preaching a message out of Song of Solomon. We were talking about God's designs for their little ears. Romance. We were talking about that. And... And I'll try to put this together in ways that are kid-friendly. Uh, so one woman runs out. I, mean, I preach the message. We're into worship. Um, and I'm sitting outside. And one woman comes out. And she's crying kind of hysterically. And then a couple minutes later, another woman comes out crying hysterically. And then the first woman runs back in. And then the second woman runs back in. And now I'm going, okay, this is really interesting. So the first one comes out again about five minutes later. I'm like, okay, what's going on? She's never been to church before. And she says, my partner and I are arguing over whether or not we should break up because of what you've been talking about. Okay, can you read the subtext here, adult people? Okay. The other one comes, and she'd been somebody in our church for a long time. And she'd been hiding this. So she sees me, and she just caves. She's like, oh, no, no, no. So we go outside. What's my little Pharisee heart want to do? What's my Pharisee heart want to do? Condemn, judge, guilt, shame, heaping. All right? Was God already working in their lives? Was he? And would have, would have my burdening helped his work or hindered it in that moment? I think it would have hindered so God rebukes my little Pharisee heart. He says, you know what? Why don't you just keep your mouth shut and let me work? Because he was working. Right? 
My little Pharisee heart, once you've blown it big in my book, you are that in my little Pharisee heart. Jesus renames people all the time. Oh, yeah, you used to be this, now you're this, no problem. I mean, think about what we do as churches. You've got people walking in who don't have jobs, whose marriages are falling apart, whose children are blowing out, who don't believe that God's really good, who believe, but know, they believe that money's going to solve their problems, but they know it won't, but they just have to find out for themselves. Struggling with all kinds of addictions and patterns and lies and habits and desires. I mean, it's a mess. And then what do we do? What do we do as the church? Okay, well, here's what you got to do, kids, if you want to follow Jesus. The first thing you got to do is, man, you got to come faithfully, get in a Bible study, serve, and give money. The second thing you've got to do is you've got to come and understand perfectly the Trinity before you can say yes to Jesus. Because it's only taken the church 2,000 years to work out the Trinity, and we still don't have it fully worked out, but you've got to buy that ahead of time. And you've now got to become a Republican, just so you know. <laughs> You've got to understand the rapture when it's going to happen and make sure you're not left behind. Then what you've got to do is you've got to figure out you can't smoke, you can't swear, you can't drink in public, doggone it. You can't watch R-rated movies. You've got to understand Noah and the ark. You've got to have it all worked out. Whether you speak in tongues, can women preach? This is what we say to people when they come to Jesus. Here, follow Jesus. And what's Jesus say? What's Jesus say? Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, if Jesus said his yoke is easy, and this is what we do as a church, who, whose word are you going to take for that? Can we go with Jesus on that one? So if your yoke, if the yoke isn't easy, maybe we've missed it along the way. Now, does believing the Trinity matter? Oh, it's central. Does giving and serving and Central. Is it a good idea not to smoke? Yep. To not swear? Absolutely. To guard what comes into your eyes? Yes. I'm not saying any of that. But are those things the most important things for somebody new to Jesus? See, how many hurdles do we put up? How many hoops do people have to jump through? See, Jesus, I love it. He just says, come to me. Don't come to my religion. See, Jesus didn't found Christianity. Jesus gave himself. Christianity came afterwards. And there are good parts to it, but there are bad parts to it. Not everything that's Christian is of Jesus. So Jesus says, come to me. Evangelism in the early church. Here's what I love. Evangelism in the early church. Here's my friend. Jesus, meet my friend. That was evangelism in the early church. Right? Right? Jesus, meet my friend. 
Oh, he's paralyzed. All right, so we'll dig a hole through a roof and we'll lower him down. That was, that was it. You brought people to Jesus. Today we want to bring people, right, to church or to Christianity or to a whole set of beliefs. And all of those matter, but are they the most important things? Do you realize churches are splitting today over whether worship has drums or not, is contemporary or not, is hymns or not? Churches are splitting today over whether you're baptized one time or three times. Churches are splitting today over whether or not they believe the Holy Spirit is fully active in all of the gifts of the Spirit or not today. Do those issues matter? Sure. Are they the most important issues? They are not. Now, if you're here and your inner Pharisees rising up at some of this, good, then this is for you. Because my inner Pharisee rises up at all of this. I just want to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But da, da, da. And yeah, all that stuff's true. But Jesus says, come to me. Yoke isn't just what you find in the egg. You farming people know a yoke is how you would join two animals together to do work. A yoke figuratively in the Bible speaks of either subjection to something so you would have like the yoke of Egypt if you were enslaved to the Egyptians. But it also speaks of joining with something. So Jesus literally says, come under my teaching and you will find it easy and light. Now, how can he say that? Remember what the Pharisees did. They loaded heavy things and they didn't lift a finger. Does Jesus lift a finger to help us? Yeah, he carries it kind of is the point. And he never focuses on the minutia. He always focuses on the heart, right? What are the two greatest commandments? The Pharisees added 1,500 to the 613. Jesus boiled them down to two. Love God, love neighbor. End of story. So brothers and sisters, the question for us this morning is this. If you're here, you're new to church, I've got really good news for you. You don't have to jump through hoops to get to Jesus. You don't have to swallow 2,000 years of Christian belief to get to Jesus. You don't have to climb a ladder to get to Jesus. Jesus just simply looks at you and says, come to me. To me! 2,000 years later, come to me. And when you actually start to do the things that Jesus suggests, you'll find that forgiving people is actually a better way to live than holding grudges. Which is the heavier burden, holding resentment or forgiving? Forgiving. And if you don't believe me, try both. Which leads to freedom, generosity or greed? Generosity. If you don't believe me, try both. You actually find his yoke is like, not only because he does the caring, but because he's actually designed us to live the best way we can possibly live. It's better to tell the truth. It's not as burdensome. It's better to be somebody of integrity. It's better to be forgiving. It's better to love. It's better to forgive. And all of a sudden, you're walking around going, oh, this isn't so heavy. So, would you shut your eyes this morning? I can't see you. Oh, there you are. Did you shut your eyes this morning? Why do we shut our eyes? Because God does his best work in the dark. We all know this. All right, that was a joke if you're new. Churches, what churches do is they, like, turn the lights down when it's, like, really important. So if you open your eyes, you'll see that it's dark. That tells you God is here. 
Okay. A couple of questions for you. Number one. What are you neglecting? If you're a follower of Jesus like me, I've got some minutia down. What am I neglecting? The racism in my heart? The poor and the needy at my doorstep? Mercy? Justice? Faithfulness? What am I neglecting? What's it like for me to step into the light and easy yoke that Christ offers? What's that mean? What's that look like? For some of you, you just need to be unburdened this morning. And so, Father, I pray for those who are weary because we recognize empty religion is exhausting. And we pray, Jesus, that you would come and set us free from the burdens we add on each other, the burden of shame, the burden of grief, the burden of judgment, the burden of condemnation. And Jesus, would you be front and center? Would the things that are important to you be most important to us? Would the things that didn't matter as much to you be less important in our eyes? And so God, as we sing and we worship and as we pray, would you receive these as prayers to you, God, from hearts that are weary and desire rest? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.